Welcome to the eighth episode of the Ithacast. I'm Tuck Nguyen. And I'm Seth Murtaugh. And we are here today with uh, Pete Tyler, who's uh, chief of the Ithaca Police Department. Uh, so, Pete, when we've done these interviews, we've usually started off just asking um, the interviewees about their, their personal background. And the thing that I've heard about you, and I don't know if this is true, is that you've worked every position in the Ithaca Police Department. So, first of all, thank you for having me on, and uh, I appreciate it. And that is not true. Um, <laughs> however, uh, yeah, back in, uh, I don't know what the date timeline was, but back in the late 90s, uh, I did have an opportunity. I interviewed for an investigator position, but that was not in the cards for me. So is that and the only position? That's the only position that, that I haven't. Right. Wow. So in the course of your, I mean, you've had a really involved career. Um, how, how has the police department changed in, in the course of your time with the Ithaca Police Department? That's uh, it's, it's a tough question, but I think generally speaking, I think technology has been the, the biggest driving factor for our police officers and what they are expected to do um, as far as like we were just talking about it today and where I might have written a three-line sentence on a yellow card, they have a whole set of procedures that they have to go through yeah. uh, you know, with our computer systems either in the cars or in the office and everything is, uh, you know, is electronic. So there's a lot of stuff that they're required to do. And I know a, um, I know a big issue, obviously, right now is the staffing levels. Um, there have been some articles about that. And that's been an ongoing issue that we've faced ever since the recession. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, just where the department is, uh, where you'd like to be the, the, the department to be kind of looking out maybe five, 10 years, um, what would be an ideal staffing level for the department? Well, I think that you have to look at where the city has come from and, and where we are now. And then to answer your question about longevity, uh, trying to project of what the needs are going to be for this, the city, you know, 10, 20 years from now. Um, I can tell you, since I've been here for a long time, that uh, we are definitely on the verge of outdriving our, our our headlights. We are a very, very busy police department. Um, you know, you look at city size, which is uh, typically a barometer for how you would look at staffing, but it's what our city does mm -hmm. and how active it is, how uh, vibrant the downtown is. We have two schools here, which add significantly not only to the population, but to the, the call load that our officers face every day. Um, you know, and if you look at our staffing levels, they've actually decreased over mm -hmm. the last 10 years. And, right. you know, you have to ask yourself, uh, w first of all, why did that happen? Um, why haven't they returned to the, those staffing levels? And have we gone backwards or forwards in the uh, the call load? And I can tell you that we definitely haven't gone backwards. I think right. that our population has has increased. I think that our special events have increased and our call load has increased. And that's one of the reasons that I'll be coming to uh, council this this year to start the process of really in earnest looking at what the police department provides um, and looking for additional support in hiring more police officers. I mean, it seems to me that's one of the things I've heard from the officers is that it seems like they are being asked to do more and more, um, you know, with the lead program, um, with all our, our drug policies and also with the, the community outreach. I mean, IPD has done some really awesome things with community outreach over the last few years with the barbecue and, but there is a cost there. Um, and I mean, looking back on, you know, we've been talking about this issue recently because we had some officers come to our last common council meeting and looking back like pre-recession, uh, I think there was 74 officers and then there was a bunch of positions that were cut with the financial crash. And we've been slowly trying to claw our way back 
to those levels, but we're still kind of way off from where we were even right. just like 10, 15 years ago. So it was right. really just the city got slammed with the recession. I think every department lost positions. Um, but it's been really critical in the police department, as you say, because we're adding, continuing to add, um, things for the officers to do throughout the city. Right. And there's, and that's a multi-layered, um, subject. I mean, I think at the high point, we were actually at 78. We had 74 on the books, but we also had the four police officers that we acquired through the COPS grant, mm-hmm. um, which gave mm-hmm. us four more. After three years, that expires and then the city picks up the, the costs. And yeah. I think through, um, retirements, those numbers crept back down, um, so just because so we can understand and the, our listeners can understand, what is the current staffing right now? Because I know that there's a certain number of positions that are funded, but not all all of those positions are filled right Correct. now, right? So right now we are funded for 69 police officers. So subtract that from the 78 that we were at our highest point uh, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, out of that, we have 68 of those positions that have been filled Um However, uh, I am going to be hiring a deputy chief here shortly, so that mm-hmm. will be we filled out. However, then you have to start looking at long-term um, vacancies. So we have an officer, for example, which is deployed overseas. Mm-hmm. We have two officers that are out on long-term disability, uh, one for as long as, as, as seven years. Those are all positions that are being paid for but don't equate to actual uh, numbers on the, on the street. Right. Um, that is a constant number. I always use a minus five as a guesstimate for the amount of officers that are typically out at one time on a relatively long-term uh, basis. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that puts us right now it, it, with uh, – and we we just – we have an officer that is that is going to be leaving for a year uh, on another matter. Um, so there's another position that, that we have to look at filling and, yeah. you know – typically we replace these officers when they leave or retire with new officers with less experience. And we go through this, this tough cycle. And the other thing that I've talked to both of you about is how long it takes us to hire and train our police officers. Right. Um, we just hired four officers this last year. They're all in the Academy right now in Syracuse. And it took us seven months to, uh, to, get four police officers out of the, I don't know, probably 14 uh, applicants that we looked at. It's a very strenuous and uh, long-term process of, of going through getting certified police officers, doing backgrounds. They have to go through a poly, a mental health, you know, fitness report, and all these other things. It's very complicated. It's very, very complicated, and it's hard to explain to the general public of, of why it's so difficult. Um, you know, so if I have a retirement that person with 25 years of experience is gone, and then it takes us a year and a half until that actual replacement takes effect. So when those four officers who are currently in the academy, when they're on the streets, will that help with the staffing level? Or is the concern that you're going to lose people, too, because you're going to have retirement? So by the time that those four police officers graduate from the academy, go through their mandated, which is over 200 hours of uh, field training time, we'll already have probably one, two, possibly three more people that are going to be retiring. So Mm -hmm. we'll start that process all over again. Because the community has such high expectations for its officers, what do you look for when you're looking for new recruits? And, And what's the process look like when you're bringing on someone new? Well, we, we look for representation from the community itself. We'd love to, to get the people that have been born and raised uh, in and around Ithaca in this community, um, gone to the schools here, understand 
what the community expects and want to be able to invest and give back to the community that they were raised in. Um, sometimes that, that works out for us, and sometimes it doesn't because we're kind of restricted by what civil service allows us to do and, and how we get the, you know, we don't create our own list that's based on who tests, who does well enough to score within the top three on those tests, and that's the numbers that we actually look at. Um, we do have an extensive recruitment program. Uh, we have a recruitment team, which uh, does a lot of, uh, you know, uh, recruiting efforts throughout the, the years leading up to a test. Um, we offer a lot of support in conjunction with our human resources department for test prep and, and other things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the candidate and the candidate's ability to, to do well enough on the, the exam where we can reach them. And that only starts the availability process. And then we get into, you know, their background and the hiring process, which again is, is very challenging. And once you get through all of the different things and we offer them a job, they've gone through, you know, a year, year and a half worth of, of, um, work to, to get hired by a police department. It's, it's pretty intensive. So what, I mean, do you struggle with recruitment? I've heard that that's an issue. Like there's a broader trend where it's, it's become more challenging for officers, for police departments to recruit new officers. Do you think that's an issue for IPD? I, I do. And I, and I think that, you know, there's a number of different reasons for it. I mean, if, and I know we're going to talk about it, but for example, we haven't had a contract right. for, you know, seven years. So if you're looking at, for example, taking a job as a police officer or coming in as a lateral transfer, you might, take a second thought and be like, well, I'm not sure what the stability looks like. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe I'll wait and see, um, how, how it shakes out before I apply to that particular department. Um, recruitment and, and the challenges of getting people in today's environment where, uh, unfortunately a lot of times the police are seen as a, as a inconvenient, uh, nuisance or to some people, they actually dislike the police or fear the police for various reasons. Um, it can be challenging, you know, and we're asking uh, young individuals to, to step up and take a very difficult job, an honorable profession, um, but sometimes under the the uh, the cloud of, of that that scrutiny. And, and some people just don't want to do that. You know, mm -hmm. it's uh, I've, I've been doing it for a long time. And sometimes I catch myself saying, man, would I want to take this position, uh, mm -hmm. you know, given today's climate? And I admire each one of the men and women that, that do stand up and they, they take an oath to protect and serve our community, even under those conditions. And, oh, by the way, here in Ithaca, I think we do it really, really well. What's the process for a lateral transfer and, and how much easier does it make it for you to hire someone? Um, a lateral brings some sense of ease, but it also is uh, you have to ask why. You know, the tough question, why does somebody want to come from another agency to work here and will they be a good fit? Because it's not just that they're a police officer or a deputy somewhere else. It's are they going to be a good fit for our police department. I mean, mm -hmm. we have, you know, we have a different way of doing things in a lot of different areas. Um, we have a lot of community outreach. We have a lot of training areas where we expect our officers to perform at a high, high level. And I would never, you know, say that that's not the case anywhere else. That's not my job to do. But um, sometimes it's just not a good fit for other other people. So the process is, uh, you know, just like anywhere else, they put in an application. Um, they still do have a probationary period, which is rather unique for our city. We felt the need to do that yeah. so that they literally will have to give up their job and take a risk here, knowing that their job 
potentially isn't secure. That's oh, wow. a little bit different here. And that also makes it more challenging for us to attract lateral candidates as well. Sure. That's a pretty high risk for them. What kinds of like skills and qualifications are you looking for in a, in a new recruit? Because it seems to me that as policing evolves, it's it's becoming more of a profession. Like you might want to look for people who even have, you know, master's degrees in criminal justice, that kind of thing. Is that something that you take into consideration when you're looking I, at a new hire? Or I honestly think, uh, you know, uh, character is the is the main mm-hmm. thing that we look for. Is somebody that is, um, you know. They have to start at the beginning, which is a PT test. They have to be reasonably fit. We, yeah. we want people that are confident and capable that they can protect themselves um, and protect others. So they have to be able to do a minimum of, of various things. Um, they have to be intelligent. You know, they have to be able to multitask. And mm-hmm. it sounds simple enough, but under crisis, when everybody is running away, we have to count on these men and women to to maintain calm, be a leader in that situation and be able to take control in some situations or at least offer guidance to, to people who are experiencing probably the worst day of their life. Right. Um, that takes a unique individual, some of which we can train, uh, them to do. And, and some of it is, is kind of an inherent, uh, you know, trait, which is they they bring to the table and mm-hmm. we flush that out through the, the background and the training and, and all those different things that, uh, that they have to go through to become a police officer. Um, so what does an average shift look like for, for an IPD officer? I mean, I mean, that might be a little bit hard to describe, but just paint, paint a picture of like, what, what, what are the most common things that they are responding to? Um, when they're out on patrol. Right. So an officer shift starts out with a briefing where they get uh, all the information that is relevant to um, them starting their day, uh, whether it's a suspect vehicle that we're looking for, a wanted person, um, things to watch out for that are uh, going to be dangerous for them during the shift. And they go out on patrol. And there's a lot of proactive things that we ask them to do, uh, whether it's stopping people for speeding, looking for criminal activity, um, being a physical presence in, in a variety of different areas that's broken up by their beat boundaries. And then they handle calls. And I, and I think depending on where they are, um, patrolling or what their beat sectors are will dictate the, the majority of the types of calls. For example, if they're patrolling College Town, they're yeah. going to get more student based problems, a lot of parking things right. and, and noise complaints and quality of life issues. And maybe on the south side, they're going to be dealing with more shoplifting and traffic accidents and, you know, be, given the nature of the terrain that they're, they're dealing with. Right. Um, I know we hear the term community policing all the time and, you know, it's almost it's kind of a buzzword, right? Um, I don't I don't think there's any police chief in the country that would object to the the phrase community policing. They describe right. the community policing as what we all want. Um, what is your idea of it? I mean, what is what is the a kind of ideal model of community policing? Well, I, I think is uh, you know, community policing basically is the the concept is the community is the police and the police are the community. That's mm-hmm. the that that's rawest form, and that link of how well we can work together Mm -hmm. and to solve community problems. And with that, I think without the keyword, which is trust, that becomes very challenging. So um, because of the authority that police officers have, because of the job that they have, there are a lot of different things which make that very susceptible, that word trust. Um, That's one of the things when we talk about a culture 
that our police officers understand right from day one. They understand that, again, not speaking for any other agency, but that they're expected to understand and, and do well. Um, so they're expected to be out of the cars. They're expected yep. to be able to just be able to talk to people. I mean, it sounds simple enough. No one to take the sunglasses off. No one to... Uh, kneel down in front of a child and give them a high five. Those are just the everyday behavioral things that, that our officers are really good at. Mm-hmm. And then from a police department standpoint, what type of investment are we making um, to learn from mistakes from other agencies on a national level? What mistakes we make uh, on a local level and how can we fix them? I mean, certainly we're not perfect. Um, and how can we help the community better understand what we do? Mm-hmm. So... One of the things that we do that is we have to be able to let the community see us in a different format, like outside of this uniform, which can be very intimidating to some people. Um, we'd like them to see this as a as a beacon of hope or somebody that they can go to and trust. Again, not everybody sees it like that. Mm-hmm. So we have to create environments for them through meetings. I meet with a community group every month. Um, that group was instrumental in setting up, for example, the community barbecue where we had uh, IPD officers and the community sharing, breaking bread over food, having conversation. And, um, you know, if you attended, you saw the kids running around being very comfortable in and around police officers. You saw the adults having conversations. We were able to answer a lot of questions that people may have about uh, local policy or local trends or national conversation pieces. And it was, it was all very light. And those are the type of events that, that are important um, to, to bring that, that trust level back to a, a basic premise. We're also doing at the end of this month, we're doing an open house where we're going to open our doors on Sunday, the 30th from 12 to three to give everybody an understanding of the equipment that we use, why we use it, um, a look at our aging building, hint, hint, Um, you know, (laughs) looking at letting kids crawl through our police cars, our mobile command vehicle, our canine unit, our bike unit, um, and just opening our doors for public to kind of see what what we do. We also do an annual Citizens Police Academy. We do. Talk a little bit about what happens in that. Right. So that this year we actually, unfortunately, because of a, a lot of staffing issues and, and our schedule, we had to uh, kind of pull it back a little bit. And we took the Syracuse model this year, and I think it was a three-day as opposed to um, broken down over several weeks. And it was very efficient. And basically – we're giving them a condensed police academy where they understand and they look at all the different areas that, that we do, you know, policy and procedure, the history of law enforcement, the history of IPD, um, you know, and then we get into specialty areas of uh, patrol, investigations, SWAT, negotiations, bike patrol, traffic, and each one of those specialty areas, a representative comes and talks about what they do, why they do it. They get uh, typically a PowerPoint or a tour of the various uh, facilities which support that or the equipment that they use. And the hope is that once they uh, complete the Citizens Police Academy, they'll have a very good understanding in general of, of what IPD is all about. There was an incident in 2009 when Sean, Sean Greenwood uh, died that had a huge impact on you know race relations in the community and created a lot of divisions um, there was also an, uh, an incident uh, a couple years ago on Cleveland Avenue with the two black teens who had a, a white officer pull a gun. And, you know, I think the local community looks at these things in the context of, of Ferguson and everything that's happened since then. Um, and I hear what you're saying, that you're doing a lot to um, improve 
relations in the community. Um, how do, how, how have you dealt with, uh, the issue of race relations, uh, locally with the department? It's the same, same premise is, is understanding and meeting with various groups, um, our officers having those relationships on the street with people, um, you know, whether it's me meeting with clock at a mm-hmm. two hour meeting to discuss police issues, me meeting with the community group to discuss um, issues just, that they bring. Just so our listeners know, clock stands for community leaders of color. Right. Um, and and me meeting with uh, my monthly community group, they will bring to me concerns that are filtered through them. And we can talk about them. It might be a police action. It might be something that somebody's seen on TV that they're concerned about. And it gives me an opportunity to explain, at least from the perspective of the police department, um, and listening to their concerns, because it goes both ways. It's not just me telling them why we did something and expecting them to digest it. I have to also, as a chief, listen to what they are saying, why they are saying it, and try to get a better understanding of why they're feeling the way they are, and then bringing everything together um, and trying to come up with solutions, which is the, the final part of that. So with race relations, um, and, you know, in the in the last few years, to be honest with you, I think generally speaking on the local level, I think we do very, very well. And, mm-hmm. and I think people are comfortable um, with our police department, and they should be because of the work that they're doing. Um, we are ready, willing, and able to accept when we fall short. You know, if, if we, um, make a mistake, I think as a leader, it's, it's my job to, to recognize that yes, we in fact made a mistake and we need to own it. Mm-hmm. Um, shoulder the blame. And while we're doing that, what can we do to make sure that it doesn't happen again? And if your community knows that your police department is capable of doing that, capable of always trying to get better, then I think, again, then you're heading towards that trust thing. And I think with race relations, even with the national context mixed in there, um, I think it's something that we, you know, again, we, we perform at a, at a very good level. Uh, so a couple of years ago, the Ithaca Youth Council did this really interesting survey where they surveyed the youth in the high school and the results of that, I thought, were fascinating um, because it did show that overall there was a pretty high opinion of the police department among the youth that they surveyed. But what the survey also showed was that there's a lot more work that needs to be done to build trust among students of color and in particular black students. So I wanted to ask you, um, what are you doing to engage youth? Because I'm sure that has to be a big part of a police officer's job, right? Working with the school district. I know there have been debates over the years about whether the high school should have a resource officer. Uh, but what are some of the things that you're doing to engage youth in the school district? So I think first, well, in the school district and separately, I think our officers do that regularly anyway. The, we are no different than any other police department. You'll see a police officer that is stopped um, by a basketball court playing basketball yep. with with mm-hmm. with our youth. I mean, it's it's something again as a culture that our our department does every single day. Um, we have, and I think this is probably one of my more frustrating pieces is is we are ready willing and able to to connect inside the school mm-hmm. um i have a very good working relationship with dr brown dr trumbull and um they call us frequently for issues that they have and i the issues of a school resource officer i'm all for it mm-hmm. i would support it i think it's a, a good thing and again i think it just comes down to um some faculty and some parents they just are not ready for that for whatever reason in this community. Mm -hmm. And all we can do is continue to work in general with, uh, with our community to, to hopefully, 
get to a point where they can see the benefit of it. It's not an occupying force in in the hallways. It's somebody that the kids can go to that they um, can you know, share things that they wouldn't normally share, whether it be uh, a, a troubled student that may be bringing in a gun to school that may be potentially an active killer, or it may be something that um, they build up enough trust with a police officer to say, hey, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm being bullied or or whatever the issue may be. Right. And, um, you know, you look at off all of us underneath the uniform, we're humans just like everybody else. And um, we have some officers that would be perfect fit for working in the school and I think would make a big difference. So I would continue and will continue to work towards that goal. So you start to allude to this. There are members of the community who feel like the police is over-militarized and certainly with us on council, every time we accept a grant for night vision goggles or other equipment, yeah. it's perceived as being as the militarization of the police uh, from our federal government. And then you combine that too with the fact that we have a SWAT team and people don't, don't understand why a small community like ours has one. Um, so can you tell our listeners what the SWAT team is used for and what some of these, some of this equipment that we've sure. received grants for is used for? Sure. I think for starters, um, I think that there's a general misunderstanding of, of what our community brings. And although we are a very vibrant, successful and, and outgoing community, we, we have issues just like any other city where, um, talking and, and, uh, community policing are not going to fix the issue. We have people that are willing to um, hurt our citizens, willing to cause uh, damage, um, that will fight our police, that carry guns through our city streets, and we have a capability. And the capability is not just the SWAT team, but it's the equipment, it's the negotiations team that we have, and it's the larger picture response to if something bad happens in Ithaca, New York, are we, number one, prepared to deal with it? Number two, are we capable of dealing with it? And, um, you know, have we spent, invested enough time and training to have all of those things in place should that day come? Mm. To answer your more direct question about uh, what the SWAT team is used for, you know, our bread and butter, if you will, is going to be serving high-risk search warrants. And, you know, we're not out just serving any warrant that a judge issues. We have a high level of scrutiny about when our SWAT team can be used. We have a matrix that we have to review. It goes all the way to the chief's office, and I have to sign off on the use of the SWAT team. We do recognize that it is um, sometimes only in perception, but it is a different level of force. They bring different equipment, they bring different capability, and sometimes to some people they look more intimidating. Mm -hmm. I would offer to you that the equipment that they carry, for the most part, um, is also available to our patrol officers. However, you know, uh, sometimes they wear bigger vests, sometimes they wear helmets. Um, again, our patrol officers have that capability too, should that level of, of danger rise to that. So, you know, I always kind of use the, uh, the family in the, the helmet uh, analogy, it's like if you have a family member who you were sending in the door and you knew that there was a high risk of them being shot at right? and they had the availability to wear a helmet, would you want them to wear that helmet? 
And I think most people, when you look at it like that, would say, well, yeah, I'd want them to, to wear a helmet because it would offer them a higher degree of protection. And that is one piece of the thing. Yes, the helmet could look intimidating to some people. Yes, the military uses a similar type helmet to protect their soldiers. But um, the militarization of the police is, is, in my opinion, has been an overused word that gets muddied into this confusion about what that actually means. We are a police department. We're a community um based community or uh, police department that has a love for the the people that we serve and our job is to protect them in any situation that our city throws at us you look at the walmart incident you know and you say well that would never happen and everybody says well it's it's ithaca why do you need a swat team in ithaca well the swat team in ithaca was able to respond to a very dangerous situation where somebody was shot and killed and a pursuit uh with deputies took that person to a residence uh, where they were still armed with the same weapon. They shot at the police officers. And our SWAT team, with the training, with the level of uh, professionalism that they display, was able to handle that and bring that person, and not only to a successful resolution, but a successful resolution with the even the suspect not being injured or harmed. And um, that took a, a great degree of competence and patience and negotiating skill and that's why I think it's important that we do have um, necessary capability to to do that. So, and I, and I've used that that same analogy with the the fire department when I've been responding to constituents who are calling me angrily, wondering why this, there was a SWAT call out in their neighborhood. That you know we nobody questions the use of special equipment when a you know a firefighter is going into a burning building. There are cases where police officers are walking into very dangerous situations, and they should have the special equipment in order to, to ensure their safety. Um, I still think, though, you know, since I've been on council, I'd say that 80% of the complaints about the police department that I've received have come from SWAT callouts. And I think it's because it's, it's, a, it's a style of policing that the, right. the community is just not familiar with. And when, you know, there's a flashbang goes off in your neighborhood, for instance. And I actually, I, I, I lived through this because there was a uh, – SWAT call out right behind my house. Uh, and I woke up, it was like four and I knew what was happening. You know, this was like four o'clock in the morning. It was like, my first thought was that my basement had exploded. My second thought was that like, like a tractor trailer had like crashed into a house on the block. And then I put two and two together and realized what was happening. And I, and I looked out the window and you see these people outside and there's lights everywhere and there's this, all this equipment and there's officers in the street. I think it can just be very bewildering for people and they're left with all these questions. Right. Like, what was that? What was happening? You know, this, this involved a house that I'd walked by probably a thousand times without any suspicion whatsoever. In fact, I think I'd probably said hi to the people hanging out on the porch, you know? So I think those are the types of questions that oftentimes residents are left with. And then we get the angry calls, right? They, like, they call us up. They're like, what the hell is this? This is a military force, all the rest. Um, so, you know, I think for a, an elected official, it's, you know, it, there's two sides to that, right? I mean, we have to do our best to explain what the police department is doing, why they're using this equipment. And also, I think, talk to you and the other officers to say, what can we do better to communicate, um, to help people understand right. why this is happening in their neighborhoods? And and we, you and I have had the discussion, Doug, you and I have had that discussion. And, um, you know, we learn every single time that we get a, we get a complaint. Um, you know, a perception of 
how people reacted to a specific thing. And I think when we're talking about the use of force, when we're talking about our SWAT team, um, we really have to look at the capability and the restraint and the level of training that our SWAT officers get. And, um, you know, a lot of the bad uh, reputation that our tactical teams over uh, a long period of time have gotten are from mistakes made in the tactical environment Mm -hmm. under high stress, under high danger, where the officers weren't confident, they weren't capable, and that's how mistakes happen. Um, Again, there is a, a high degree of restraint and preparation and planning, which goes into every single, you know, job that the SWAT team is asked to perform and, and complete successfully. If you look at their record, they have a high degree of success and success is measured on a lot of different things. I understand that. But, um, you know, has a SWAT team gone out and, and just willy nilly shot anybody or, um, you know, recklessly, um, put people's lives in danger. And unless you understand the larger picture of what the scenario is, you'll probably never get the truth behind that. But what I can tell you as a chief is that there is a, a substantial amount of training and, and practice and preparation that goes into each operation. Um, one of the things that we have done and we change, our tactics are constantly evolving um, to make things safer typically for bystanders, uh, bystanders or, or victims, um, which maybe is a family resident that is a non-involved party in one of the houses. We constantly get uh, feedback on, well, you used a flashbang, um, there's a loud noise, and there's a child inside. And all of these things right. that we, we consider, maybe there was a child next door that was startled and scared or a resident next door that was exposed to a loud flashbang. And, you know, there's no easy answer to that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's easy for an officer to just brush it aside and say, that's just what we do. That's what we have to do. Um, My job is to try to look at the the larger picture post incident and say, could we have done something different or would we next time? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the answer will be, no, we wouldn't do anything different. And here's why. And um, we're asked to do a tough job. We're asked to go into somebody's residence that they're familiar with, that we know is probably armed, that has been dealing uh, drugs or, or whatever the reason we're going to get them, and they have a lot to lose. And you start adding those things up in the in the risk factor, and it's 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 a very dangerous uh, position to put our police officers in. Um, so if we started taking away capability because of you know that residual. Um, concern, then we're putting our officers at higher risk. And maybe we're even putting the same people that would be complaining about, for example, uh, a flashbang at risk to a shooting. Mm -hmm. So we don't use a flashbang and that creates an opportunity for the suspect now to shoot at us. Number one, our officers are at higher risk. And where did those bullets go? Right. You know, so those are conversations that I have post-incident a lot with residents. Yep. um, Some of which... We'll walk away saying, I agree to disagree. We're never going to completely come to an understanding, but at least when you walk away, I want you to understand what our intent is and, and hopefully 99% of the time what the results are for, for our team use. Yeah, for my part, every time I've asked about a certain piece of equipment, like a robot or what a throw phone is used for, which is like negotiation, uh, you or someone on staff has given very thoughtful responses. And in my judgment, you know, it's been justified. And I think we all make that determination uh, and ask hard questions because we're not looking for a militarized police force either. Public safety is number one, though. 
is kind of the first function of government. And so we try to be reasoned about, about these decisions. And, and I think that, you know, it is that thin line of, um, you know, if you don't have strict policies, you don't have strict procedures, and you just wing it, you know, with the same equipment or the same tactics, uh, without the practice, without the training. Um, you remember all of these officers that are on the SWAT team or any other uh, department function that you see uh, during the day, during their regular shifts, they're out there patrolling with everybody else. Mm-hmm. So one of the benefits, the hidden benefits to a department like ours is all these officers that are getting this extra training, um, they bring that to patrol every day. And so you have a much higher degree of confidence um, in the workforce that you have and some situations that may escalate into maybe even a shooting in other communities. Um, we're able to either use other equipment, other tactics, um, or keep calm um, where those things don't happen here in Ithaca. And I'm never going to put our officers in a position and and say that we will never make mistakes or we'll never, you know, have those incidents here because that's just practically not the case. But we try to put them in the best position prior to uh, going into that for success. Speaking of training, I have a question for both Seth and the chief, because um, I know Seth was involved in this. Can you talk a bit about the implicit bias training uh, that IPD has been doing? Yeah, I mean, we, we spent a long time working with some community members, and uh, the PBA was involved at that time, John Jolie, who was the president of the PBA, um, working to develop a, an implicit bias training for the for the department. Worked with an organization called Fair and Implicit. Um, fair, Implicit. Impartial. Fair and Impartial Policing, yeah. Um, and I know that, uh, there was funding, I believe there was funding put in the, the, the budget, budget for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, where does, where does that stand currently? So one of the things that I wanted to do, and, uh, we were working with a community group when we first started those, those conversations, um, was we started looking at some of the costs that, that would be, uh, if we were to bring in trainers from, uh, from, uh, across the country. And we, we quickly realized that trying to coordinate a community effort, uh, where we had community instructors, and then law enforcement instructors trying to schedule and do all of that. And um, we, after long consideration, we, we figured the best thing to do was send some train-the-trainers out um, and bring them back to IPD. And one of the commitments that I had last year for one of the goals for IPD for 2017 was to get every single officer through an eight-hour block of implicit bias training, just so that they understand, um, you know, and whether you agree or disagree with the concept, um, it, it creates conversation yeah. and, you know, you, you have some employees that are just like, this isn't really for me, but I'll listen. And at the end of the training, they're like, Hmm, I didn't really think about that. And, and that's a win for everybody. Um, then you have more investment with some people and it creates further interest in that subject matter area. And, um, the biggest thing that I took away from it was the conversations that it created, a uh, better understanding that, you know, everybody inherently has bias in some way, shape or form. And how does that affect us when we go out and we do our policing? And, um, if it gives our officers a, a chance to question themselves and say, mm-hmm. Hey, am I doing the right thing for the right reason? Uh, e- even within a small scale scope, then, then again, it's, it's a win. So, that was one of the things we did early on first quarter. And again, everybody here at IPD has been through that block of training and we have other ideas for uh, different areas that we can, we can look at. And also that'll be also something because we did do the train the trainer that any new officers coming through IPD will get the same, same level of training. So. Great. Yeah. And just so 
in case anybody's wondering what implicit bias means, I mean, there's some a lot of research and science that's been done to show that um, biases that people may have in regards to things like race or gender or sexual orientation that they're they're subconscious. They often operate at a level where a person might not be aware of them. And the idea behind this implicit bias training is it gives the person um, the education and the training. And at times, I think it's it's really about just more critical thinking about uh, the biases that we all have in regards to people of different backgrounds and different identities. And, um, and I think it's, you know, I, I really appreciated going through that process, you know, cause I think the process of setting up that training and in some ways was, was um, almost as educational as the training itself, just having these groups of people from very different backgrounds. I mean, we had the, the police at the table. Um, you had, we had folks from MRC, um, and I'm, I'm really glad to hear that you've been committed to that and, and funding that. And, uh, it's something I, I always try to remind people. I know that there's issues now with the contract and this, and the staffing levels. IPD has done a lot over the last few years to really make advances in, in community outreach. Um, and it's something that our constituents really appreciate. Even when there's controversies over the SWAT and, you know, I think, you know, this question of militarized policing, you know, I think that, uh, what I always try to, remind people is that the the police officers are committed to um you know being servants of the community and that's what they do day in day out right. um you know i think there's always that suspicion that maybe the, about the values of the police department you know and whether the police kind of see themselves more like soldiers rather than social workers um but i think on the on the whole i think the community is really appreciative of of all the efforts that have been put into to outreach over the last few years so well thank you and and i would agree with that and one of the things that uh you know the high points for me are when i hear back from community members um and we see it and i've always wanted our community to look at the police department specifically ipd and not policing but the ithaca police department is our police department, mm-hmm. not a police department, but it's our and take pride in, in being able to say that. So there is something that happens, which is creating this national scrutiny, um, questioning about, you know, whether it's a, a deadly use of physical force or some crisis like Ferguson or something like that. Um, people can quickly identify that that is different from at least the philosophy that our police department holds, the, the level of service that we provide and the attitude and general sense of delivery of community and professional service that is out every single day and every shift. And I would encourage, you know, people that uh, have not had an opportunity, if, if scheduling affords it, to, you know, uh, to do a ride along, to come to mm-hmm. our, our open house, to uh, come to a Citizens Police Academy and take advantage of the opportunities that are there to better learn not only about what we do, but in general what police are asked to do and under very challenging circumstances. I, so I did a ride along a few years ago and it was, it was very educational. Uh, the officer dealt with a few situations that were difficult. And, you know, there was an incident of road rage and there was a domestic and dealt with it professionally and very calmly. Um, I remember he said something kind of interesting to me that I've actually heard from other officers where I asked him if he liked being a police officer in Ithaca. And I got, he was kind of quiet. I got, I got the sense he was thinking very carefully about what he was going to say. And he was like, I love Ithaca. It's a great place. You know, the restaurants, the gorges, everything. But he said he at times felt like it was maybe more difficult to be a police officer in Ithaca than it is in other communities, just because what he said was that Ithacans are, can be very outspoken. Um, there's, you know, are not afraid to challenge authority. 
And that might be different than policing and say like a retirement community somewhere where you have a bunch of World War II veterans and they have a different attitude towards authority. Uh, do you think that there, there's anything to that, that, you know, policing in a, in a college town where you have a lot of people who have higher degrees and, you know, are critical thinkers, is it, is it, does it make it more challenging to I don't, police in that community than it's? I don't necessarily think it has anything to do with um, the schools being here. I think it's just the community itself. And I think that our community, and I think we're up for the challenge, quite frankly, but I think our community does have a certain mindset when it comes to law enforcement and what policing or what they think policing is um, for the level of service. It's interesting because a lot of the complaints that we get are from people that have just moved here. Hmm. You know, I remember Chief Barber telling me one time, it's like, you know, I'm starting to see a trend here. You know, like, why do you have a SWAT team or why did you do this and why did you do that? And and one of the first questions that he would always ask, and I do the same thing now, is, are are you new to Ithaca? You know, well, yes, I just moved here from Seattle and, you know, or I just moved here from wherever. And, you know, th- that is a trend. Anybody that's been here for a long time and you look at um, a long list of things. I think we had two uh, community police board complaints last year for tens of thousands of, of police calls for service, you know, right. and times that by 10 by contacts that our officers had. And granted, that's not a perfect scale of, of people that are, are angry or, or want to complain about police, but two complaints is is pretty amazing. I think we had one in 2016, three in 2015, and, and the trend is not any different. It is it is consistently there. Um, we, again, have no problem with, with policing ourselves to the best of our ability. We have a pretty stringent internal process where we, uh, we pretty much um, start a complaint on everything. We hold our supervisors to a pretty high standard of what we expect conduct-wise and, and accountability-wise, um, and that goes all the way to me. You know, and even even things that uh, maybe on on face don't look like an issue, they politically can be. And they also represent how people feel about the police. If we're supposed to be at an event um, that's important to people, for example, a Veterans Day and and we don't show up and don't represent the police department. That's a big deal. You know, some people's like, where's IPD? Why why aren't they supporting us? And, um, you know, those are examples of things that that we have constantly have to be more aware of and, and, and make a better, better effort at, you know? Do you, do you sometimes feel like the, the national climate is a little, is unfair to the, the police department locally? I mean, I wonder about that because you have, eight, you know, how many departments are there across the country? I assume there's got to be thousands of departments and some of them are going to be highly trained. Some of them aren't, some of them are going to make terrible mistakes. And we've seen some of those in the media and reported. And, you know, I think that there's, People are going to look at the the local police department through the lens of what is happening in places like uh, Ferguson or places like Cleveland or what happened to Eric Garner in Staten Island. Um, is that something that you've that you've how, how do you deal with that? Well, it's a tough question to, to get into. So, first of all, yes, I think that our officers are unfairly, you know, um, linked into policing in general. And I won't get into specifics, but I also think that our national police uh, on the national level are unfairly categorized as being more of a problem than stats actually show. If you really look at the the amount of context that police officers have um, versus how many things happen that have been confirmed, not just shown in a, in a five second clip, 
Um, I think there's a lot of different things that, um, you know, there's a generalization that, that police have a certain mentality. So, um, again, that's a, that's an entire separate conversation. Um, one that we won't get into today, (laughs) but, uh, from the standpoint of IPD, uh, that's the first thing that I always, uh, say, Hey, you know, when, when we don't like the police, why don't you like what bad incidents have you had or examples of our officers here that that have given you that that poor impression and typically it is not a local example it's a national example that they came from another city they've seen this or they've seen it on tv or 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 whatever so i would ask our our public is is challenge us be very hard on us um but also you know to the credit of the police officers that are out there every day um, really try to understand and, and see that they do care about their citizens. They do care about the job that they do. And they are many, many times put in a lose-lose situation, no matter what they do. Think about that from a 25 year old police officer, mm-hmm. you know, who's out there in the street, no matter what they do, they're going to, they're going to lose in one way, shape or form. And there's a lot of pressure, uh, to perform that the job, um, of a police officer in today's day and age. Well, to expand on that. And I know you've covered many of these topics already, but what are the huge challenges facing IPD and its officers these days? Well, I, th- I think that uh, one of the questions that we talked about before we went on air was the uh, the staffing levels. How do we adequately not just protect the citizens, which is our first um, priority, right? We have to be out there, serve the public, protect our citizens. So that's that. We have a large, large um population that comes in on the weekends for special events, for example. Um, I won't get into the numbers of, of how many police officers from a, a tactical standpoint, but we don't have enough police officers to cover the road, and then we're asking people to sign up for overtime to cover special events um, and protect, let's say, 5,000 additional people yeah. that are on the commons. You know, like how many police officers should that be? Uh, we have contract restrictions. We have We can't force people most times to come in and work those things. So how do we get, get past that challenge moving forward? Um, you know, we have the contract issue, which I think is, is definitely kind of gaining momentum. Um, and quite frankly, you know, our, our officers, you know, they, they've been working since 2011 without a contract. And, and I think we have to do our best to, to work with them, uh, to see that through, you know, and, um, whatever we can do to, you know, to fairly negotiate so that, you know, they can move forward and do their job and not have that weight. And I know it's a weight on you guys and, and the, the city administration, but again, you look at the job that they do and have been doing for a long time. Um, and, you know, in fairness, we, we have to, we have to get it done. Mm-hmm. So we haven't addressed the contract yet. So that's maybe a good segue. Did I answer your question before? Absolutely. We did? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Cause I, when I look at this whole history of this negotiation, I mean, it's a very complex legal back and forth. Like the whole narrative of it, honestly, I think is something that even the public is challenged to understand. Just the whole back and forth and the legal bureaucracy with the state. I mean, obviously, there's big financial considerations for for the city. Um, you know, in terms of healthcare contributions and looking at the, the city's bottom line um, for the police department. I mean, just in your opinion, I mean, how has how is the lack of a contract affecting the department on a day-to-day level? Well, I think I think from a morale standpoint, if you look at it like there, whether it's actuality or perception, is how is our police department treated? 
it, how is it treated by the public? Mm -hmm. How is it treated by its elected officials? And, um, you know, over a short time period, we have flash incidents. So we have something either really good or really bad happens. How does the community, how does our elected officials respond? So there's your first litmus test. And then over a long period of time, um, over years, like for example, this contract, how are they treated? Do they, you know, I always, uh, challenge you guys to recognize what they're doing right now every day. What, the, what, if you were to grade their level of service, um, from what you hear from your constituents, what you see and what you know, what would be the performance level that you would say? And if it's a B minus, you know, I would ask, well, explain how we can get to an A mm -hmm. and where we need to be. If it's an A, A plus and say, hey, our police officers are doing a great job, but yet we're not willing to negotiate and move forward into a successful contract, then, then that's it. Priority is the other thing is what are we prioritizing in the city? So if we look at, for example, I've, I've seen it used as an example before, so I'll mention it, um, a lot of money on a project mm -hmm. and is that project the same value as our police services? And that's, that's from the mind of a, of a police officer. They look right. at it objectively and like, well, hey, why did they spend half a million dollars on that? Yeah. And we can't have a contract. And I can't answer that as the chief. I'm not the person making those financial decisions. I can look at it and recommend and urge counsel strongly, or I can go back to the PBA and say, Hey, have you thought about this? You know, they have challenges too. They have financial challenges that they have to balance. Mm -hmm. But at some point, um, you know, morale is going to be affected. And right. I think we are definitely at that, that point now. And you said also, you alluded to this before, but the issue with recruiting is also affected. Right. Um, and I imagine that would be if you, you know, a, a officer who's a new recruit hears about that Ithaca hasn't right. had a contract for seven so years. So there's the recruiting rub on that, and then there's the staffing. So you, you throw in morale with the contract, what we feel is is not adequate staffing, mm -hmm. um, because staffing is not just call load for um, protecting and serving the, the regular calls. It's also staffing to perform those extra things that we want from our police department. I told the mayor a la carte, basically, of we're going to be the police department that you want us to be. Um, you know, we can do anything and we're going to do it well. Um, or we can go back to basic police services and just do this and this um, and not, you know, have such a dynamic presence in, in the things that we do. So, Lots of, I mean, there's so many different, you know, talking points to what makes a difference um, contractual-wise, morale-wise, um, and then service-wise. And I think, you know, the, the struggle for common council members in all of this, because, you know, we're, we're sort of caught in the middle, <laughs> is that we're, I mean, these are very much part-time jobs. You right. Know? I mean, we're, we're doing this on having other full-time jobs and all the obligations of family and all the rest. And there's so much going on. I mean, a, my, a lot of my mind lately has been consumed by the problem of our two deteriorating parking garages downtown. I mean, that, right. those are the things that are like running through my head or keeping me awake at night. Um, and I do think, and I said this to the officers when they showed up, that it's good to hear from the city employees on these issues. Like, it's good to hear people show up at common council meetings, you know, or reach out to us, you know, and just say like, hey, look, this is, you know, I know we've been grappling with this problem for, but it hasn't gone away. This is still an issue. This has to be a priority for the city. Um, so, you know, I always appreciate hearing from our 
our employees, our city employees, whether it's coming to common council meetings or giving us a call or even, you know, just going out for a beer or just, you know, having that, that dialogue and that exchange of information is really important. Right. I agree. Although we're kind of in an awkward position because we don't do the negotiating, you and I. You right. Know, uh, city Hall does. And so we do control the purse strings, however, because we control the budget. Mm-hmm. Another way in which we're kind of caught in the middle where we can apply pressure to staff and say, we want, this is what we want to see. We want to see IPD officers have a contract to boost morale and to help with recruiting and because it's the right thing to do. And one of the things that, you know, I've always said, if, if the powers that be, let me be part of that negotiation process, um, you know, with, with the right personality, because I think when you talked about it early, negotiation sometimes comes down to, to personality, mm-hmm. um, from, you know, whether it be PBA attorneys, our own people, uh, within the city. And, you know, we've been doing it for a long time and we haven't been successful. And, and when we haven't been successful at certain things, we, sometimes we have to think out of the box of how, how we can change, you know, to get over that hump, if you will. Um, and I think, quite frankly, I think we're at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated for the city that has a workforce that hasn't had a contract. I'm frustrated for the men and women here that feel that they deserve one. Um, I agree that they do. Uh, it, in, in negotiation is just that. It is negotiating. You know, they have to give something up and they have to get something back, you know, and, and that's a that's a challenge, especially with the financial um you know, limitations. And then where does IPD fall in that, that level of uh, priority? You know, is it the same as every other department? Um, is it different? Um, you know, we look at complaints citywide, I think probably potholes is the top one, right? Yeah, right. Like right, that's, that's the top one. And, um, but I, I would dare say that we're right up there at the top yep. of the list with, with either concerns or demand is a, you know, it's not just problems, it's demand of what, you know, who who solves the problems when things go badly in the city of Ithaca. Yeah. And I think, you know, the larger picture of how to finance the, the city, you know, we're challenged because we, the thing we have control over is the property taxes. But, you know, the, we have an overtaxed population. We have a property tax cap. And we have a lot of people in the city who are struggling to afford housing. Um, you know, there's there's not much flexibility to that tax rate. On the other hand, we also have Cornell. They give a little bit of over a million dollars a year. We all would like to see that number increased. There's also a state aid. I mean, we haven't had an increase in state aid for over 10 years. Right. You know, so I think that we, when I say we, I mean the mayor and the common council, we need to do a better job of collectively advocating for the city's financial interests with the powers outside the city um, so so that we can get more money into the city. Because even like, even a small bump, and that state aid, like a, a few hundred thousand dollars, could make a big difference for you know hiring more officers. And right. So, and I think I think from and I'll go back to the the immediate point, and and this is the the part where I I get to to challenge you guys is is just really and and you know to your point, you guys are doing a gazillion other things. You're doing it part time, and um, you know there's you're not just hearing from the police department, but is is understanding what our workforce has been doing for, for a long time. And I, I would like to say that there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily measurable. Um, you're not going to get stats. You're not going to, we're not going to be able to provide, you know, that type of information. I've been working with the chief of staff to try to come up with creative ideas where we can try to explain to you in a better fashion Mm -hmm. of, of why we need more staffing. And, you know, you really look at a lot of it and, and, 
There are just things that happen every day that are not measurable things, but it is a level of service. And I looked, you know, have we been in the national news in the last year? No. Um, how many complaints are we getting? No. What is your biggest complaint about the police? Well, the last time the SWAT team was used, they used, you know, a noise flash device in it and it was alarming. Where are the other problems? Are we getting corruption issues? Are we getting, you know, inappropriate uses of force? Are we, you know, a lot of the other complaints that we see in a lot of other communities that are raising these national conversations, is that happening here? And if they're not, um, how do we rate our success? And, um, you know, so recognizing that as council, recognizing that as a, as a city, um, and saying, you know what, we have a really, really good police department and, um, you know, that should mean something and and understanding what it means to be a police officer and the amount of cumulative stress that that creates the work like there's no other department in the city of Ithaca that takes their work home IPD mm -hmm. takes their work home you know um, in a general sense just being a police officer and general sense being a police officer in a small community um, you know there's very few departments that are working odd hours that mm -hmm. create that extra stress and doing really crazy stuff at odd hours where they're asked to think and perform at a high level constantly. So, you know, I, I throw all that stuff out there and that's all stuff that we should be taking into consideration when we're thinking about our police officers and what their worth is. And, you know, it's not just, um, you know, calls for service and stuff. There's so many other, other variables. So, you know, you talked about priorities and what does the city priority as a community? And I had mentioned earlier that public safety is kind of the basic function of government. And we do devote 41% of the budget to public safety is the biggest chunk. And a little over half of that does go to IPD. And in some ways, I feel like you're cursed by your success in that we do get more complaints about sidewalks and, and uh, potholes than we do about the police. At least I do. And so right. in that regard, if we listen solely, if we were to count constituent complaints, it would indicate to us, well, we need to spend more money on roads. At the same time, people are concerned about their safety, the safety of their children and their families, and we don't want a degradation in service. That's right. a really good point. I mean, the question of how you set priorities is so challenging. Right. And a lot of times it is complaint-driven. Right. You know? It goes back to that recognition uh, thing of saying, okay, to, to your point and what I was saying earlier is, is we have to recognize that the level of service we're getting is where we want it to be. How do we sustain that? And mm -hmm. at the level of service... Is that above average service that we're getting or is it minimal baseline service? And I, as a chief of police for the city of Ithaca, I will tell you that I, in my humble opinion, I think we are operating well above basic police service. We are operating at high level of service, but we're doing it. Um, I think you, both of you heard me say the majority of the police officers here, um, I had each of them send me an email with their additional duties and not just, you know, just ancillary stuff, but really um, duties. So somebody is a, you know, a, our IT sergeant. They're also in charge of the negotiation team, the evidence tech team, and uh, part of the lead team. And, and it goes on and on and on. And, you know, all these things are extra on top of that eight-hour expectation, or sometimes we kind of mix them in and ask them to multitask during that day. But it's it's a lot of stuff. And to, to maintain what we're doing um, where do we measure that and, and are we recognizing this is even happening or are we just taking for granted, um, that, Hey, they're going to show up, they're going to do a good job and that's, that's good. And, and we need to fund, you know, uh, to, to fill as many potholes as we can. 
to to your point. So yeah, it's a challenge. How does IPD interact with other law enforcement agencies at the county, the state, etc., cetera, uh, in terms of calling them for help or that they call you for help? Uh, like, for example, the Danby standoff, is that something that IPD was involved in? One of the things I guess when I walk away from this job that I'll be most proud of is the developed relationships that IPD specifically has with not only local law enforcement, but state law enforcement and federal law enforcement here. Um, I'll start with the local law enforcement. We have a wonderful working relationship, always have with the sheriff's department. Um, We do consolidate different things, whether it be the negotiations team, the SWAT team. We have different things that we share when it comes to that for your Hornbrook uh, Road thing. Um, Myself and the deputy chief and the leadership team here are more than willing to go out to any call, whether it's in the city or in the county, and listen to, you know, if, if, if it's in the county and they're the lead and their command, uh, I will make myself um, available to offer suggestions, be a resource. They do the same thing. Um, from the state police, we have a wonderful working relationship, more so on the leadership time because they, they have a lot of troopers that, that rotate in and out of, and it's tough to, you know, um, just when you think you get to know a trooper, they're, they're heading out again to another assignment. But from the leadership team, we work well. We, we get together and have uh, leadership discussions at a county level on a, on a regular basis. Um, one of the things that is a measurable with that is we have a reality-based training program that we run here countywide that was basically started by our instructor staff here at IPD and incorporated instructors from the sheriff's department and it just kept growing. And two years ago, the state police for the very first time asked if they could participate in that training program uh, for their troopers. That, and to my knowledge, that is kind of unheard of territory for them, for them to want to be part of that local thing. And they have been a great resource um, where we can reach out to them um, to ask for troopers if we have an event or we have a crisis or anything like that. Um, however, they, just like anybody else, are suffering from the same staffing issues and financial issues that, that we are, but on the state level. So it's not as, um, you know, easy as just saying, hey, I need 10 troopers and they show up. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And then lastly, um, something fairly new, and I think it comes from a direction specifically from the relationships that we've uh, garnered here at the local level, but also at the director level, is our relationship with the federal law enforcement, specifically the FBI here at our local office um, and our local agents. Uh, just last week, we had one of our investigators and a Cornell lieutenant were recognized uh, for a local case that we had um with a uh, person that was collecting and, and uh, weapons and bomb making material and things. And our, our investigators, after we got a tip from a, an alert citizen, were able to um, respond, start a case, and over a period of time worked out very well. We Last week in Albany, we went to uh, the FBI headquarters there, met with the actual director who recognized them individually, and, and that was an amazing moment. And he talked about you know, those relationships. So um, that's something that, again, when I leave law enforcement, I'll probably be one of my more proud moments or proud uh, accomplishments is the relationships that we have established and have maintained over these years. You know, one that's come up recently is just the the relationship with the county and specifically over consolidation of services and Mm -hmm. looking at, um, I know the county is looking at a study that would examine the feasibility of, of locating the sheriff's department and, and uh, police department downtown. We've had a lot of conversations about this building that we're sitting in right now, the police station, which has got a lot of issues. I think the H 
HVAC unit dates from like World War II era. Um, <laughs> um, so there's a lot of issues with, with the maintenance. And, you know, looking at a new police station, potentially building one downtown. I mean, what, so what are your, some of your thoughts on that? Um, you know, potentially partnering with the county to, to look at. I'm open to anything that gets our officers into a modern building that, uh, you know, is not bleeding finances and, um, offers at least the, the basic things like air conditioning and heat and, uh, an elevator that is, uh, handicap accessible where we can get people from floor to floor. I think that's, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty, not sad. I mean, we're, we're stuck in the situation that we are, but, um, you know, we need to, we need to move forward and modernize. So at a, at a basic level, I would like to see us in a new building. If we can somehow work with the county and, and, you know, uh, share costs and, and collectively save both the county and city a, a ton of money and it makes sense, uh, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to partake in that at least. And actually we had a meeting today where we're talking about just that and, um, it, we're, we're looking at the feasibility part of it to see where we could go. Yeah. And this is something we're looking at with a lot of our city facilities. The challenge is that it's just so expensive. I mean, to build a whole new building, whether it's a new police station, a new fire station, or a new, new city hall, we're all, we've also been talking about that. I and mean, we're talking about costs that are astronomical. So right. the difficulty is like, how do you do it? Do you partner with other governments? Do you try to get funding from the state, from the federal governments? It's it's a real challenge, and it's one that we're going to continue to look at right. with all our facilities and the and the space needs too. I mean, if you think about, um, I guess, progressively thinking towards the future, um, what are the space needs going to be ten years from now? If you're going to really invest in a new building, um, you know, you have to forward think that way as well. And and so what make makes sense to replace this space and we build a new building? We 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 can't just do that. So and. You know, there's a lot of parking issues. There's, a, right. I mean, it goes on. It's and very, on. very complicated yeah. stuff. Yep, for sure. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Pete. I know you have an insanely busy schedule, and um, I think it's really important. I mean, I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of interest in the police department. Our constituents want to know about it, so I think it's really important to have these conversations. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, thank you. And and my last bite would I would be remiss without telling the general public, you know. If you do have questions or you do have concerns, we literally are an open door and, and I can be contacted at any time or emailed and I'd be more than happy to sit down when my schedule allows or to answer an email or phone call uh, if there's an issue that relates to, to IPD or a suggestion on how we can do things better, faster, um, more professionally or, or whatever. But um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time out and, and having me on your, your podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.